This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on the Gospel of Mark called Jesus in Action. Good afternoon. You may be seated. Our children can go off to their time of ministry, and we will turn to the Gospel of Mark. Now, I have to confess that there have been times I have bounced eagerly onto the stage, excited to share my brilliant insights, to dazzle you all with uh, my understanding of the passage, and the more, the deeper we get into the Gospel of Mark, and the closer we approach the suffering and death of Jesus, the more gross and inappropriate that feels. And we're about to enter with Jesus into the Garden of Gethsemane and see him agonizing in prayer before the Father. And this is like Moses approaching the burning bush, where the voice said, the place you are standing on is holy ground. Take off your shoes. And so I hope our mood today as we approach this is one of holy reverence. And we are gazing into mysteries that we cannot understand. What it meant for Jesus Christ to suffer and to die for sinners like us. So, let's turn to the word of God. Mark chapter 14. We'll begin at verse 26. Listen to the word of the Lord. When they, that is Jesus and his disciples, had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered. Today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, And he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here, keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet... Not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. 
When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough! The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Now, these are dark and heavy chapters, aren't they? They're chapters we don't tend to turn to first when we're looking for a little encouragement in the morning. They feel heavy and a bit morbid. And if you're a Christian who prefers to walk around the world with a grin constantly plastered across your face, this is not the chapter that you are going to turn to. But all the joys that we have sung about this afternoon, every privilege that we have in Christ is built on the foundation of his suffering and death for us. And if we have become a bit blasé about the presence of God and what it means to be his son or his daughter, what it means to have the Holy Spirit within us, if we have become blasé about that, perhaps it's because we've forgotten that those things have been bought for us at a terrible price. The Son of Man loved me and gave himself for me. And that fact is at the very heart of the Christian faith. The suffering and death of Jesus are at the center of everything. And if we forget that, if we neglect that to move on to what we think are happier things, we are missing out on the deepest possible experience of the love of God. And if you want to grow in your own love for God, there is no better place to be than beholding Jesus, agonizing, suffering, and dying for you. And in these chapters, we'll see we're not only meditating on the obedience of Christ for us, but also the failure of the disciples. Peter and James and John and the rest of the disciples turn out to be a pathetic and sorry bunch, don't they? And right alongside Jesus heroically going to his death, we see everyone, all of Jesus' followers, running away and fleeing every man for himself. And this, to me, is one of the most convincing evidences of the truth of the Gospels. Because if the disciples had been inventing their own religion and making up their own stories, they would never 
ever have allowed these unflattering pictures of themselves to be painted. And I find it so encouraging, really, that Peter and James and John and the rest of the disciples are frail and weak because guess what? I am a frail and weak person myself. And despite the appearances that we try to put on, we're all pretty much in the same boat with these disciples. So, as we look in Mark chapter 14, we see Jesus going to his death for disciples who have failed him. Jesus sets his face to the cross to die for disciples who fail him again and again. Now, last week, we meditated on the Last Supper. Jesus and his disciples are celebrating the Passover in the upper room, this feast of God's redemption, and Jesus is holding out the bread saying, this is my body. And he's giving them the cup saying, this is my blood poured out for you. And then after this meal at 10 or 11 o'clock at night, they walk outside of the city to the Mount of Olives. And there, Jesus gives them this abrupt and startling prediction. They've just been enjoying the glow of this holy moment with Jesus. And then the master turns to them and says, brutally, you will all fall away. All of you guys are going to abandon me and fail me. Not one of you is going to last. The moment that things get difficult, every one of his disciples are going to take offense at Jesus and run for their own safety. And Jesus quotes Zechariah 13, verse 7. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. See, when the shepherd's around, the sheep can graze very securely. They can lie down in peace because there's someone watching out for them. But as soon as the shepherd is cut to the ground, the sheep are going to panic and run for the hills. And the disciples do not take this prediction well. They do not take any of Jesus' predictions of suffering and death very well at all. And Peter is so offended, he contradicts Jesus to his face. No, Jesus, that's not going to happen. Even if everyone else falls away, I will not. Peter, he's not too shocked about the idea of the other 10 disciples failing Jesus. To be honest, he probably kind of expected it. You know, like, look at these guys. Here's Levi, he used to be a tax collector, not terribly reliable. James and John have an anger problem trying to call down fire from heaven. They don't seem too stable. And Thomas, full of anxiety, doubting. The other disciples seem a little bit, they seem a little bit shaky, don't they? And like Peter, all of us have incredible insights into the faults of others, don't we? I can look at all of you, all of you who I know just a little bit, and I can predict how you are going to fall away. But we are completely blind when it comes to our own faults, our own weaknesses, the temptation that will lead us away from Jesus. And like Peter, each of us grossly overestimates his or her ability to withstand temptation and be faithful to Jesus. Even if everyone else falls away, I will not. Now, Peter was a sincere man. He really loved Jesus. He's no Judas. He loves Christ, but he is extremely misguided, extremely misguided. And he really overestimates 
he terribly overestimates what he is capable of spiritually. Now, naturally, Peter was a strong man. You can imagine this guy, you know, very tanned. He would have one of those big, meaty handshakes that would crush your own puny little fingers when he would shake your hand. He was a, he was a strong, dominant personality. And he is impetuous, and he is full of desire to do great things. And remember, he's the disciple who jumps out of the boat to walk on the water when Jesus invites him. He is a strong character. And Peter assumes that this, these self-centered heroics that he has naturally are all he needs to carry him through anything that Jesus calls him to. But he does not realize that the path that Christ has for him is something where the flesh is going to quickly run out of gas. And Peter is going to need a lot more than the natural strength of his own personality to carry him through. And the same is true for all of us. We all have different strengths and weaknesses, some more obvious than others. And we all have the temptation to rely on our own giftings and our own power to carry us through. And we are sorely deluded. And like Peter, we are very ignorant of the weakness in our own heart. And to Peter's disbelief, Jesus turns to him and says, Peter, you are going to deny me three times. Before this, today, this very night, hours away, within hours, Peter, you are going to completely disown me and abandon any pretension that we had any association There is a rude awakening coming for Peter. And he is going to have to face the humiliating fact of his own weakness. And if he's unwilling to address that on his own, it's going to be brought before his face in the most painful way. The other disciples abandoned Jesus. That was bad enough. But Peter doesn't just abandon Jesus. He disowns him three times. Peter really wants to distinguish himself above the other disciples. And sadly, he does distinguish himself in his cowardice. And Peter just cannot believe this. He cannot accept this possibility in himself. And he doubles down and he says emphatically to Jesus, Jesus, even if I have to die with you, I will never, never disown you. And all the other disciples chime in. They're annoyed, they're provoked and irritated by Peter. And they insist the same thing as Peter. Even, Jesus, even if we have to go and die with you, we will never, ever disown you. And as we'll see by the end of the story, no one, no disciple proves capable of being loyal to Jesus to the end. No one is able to share what Jesus must go through. And he is going to die alone abandoned by every single one of them. Are we like Peter? Do we imagine that we are strong? Do we look around and think, yeah, there's nothing God could throw at me that I couldn't face. And we're swept up in our worship and our devotion and our exaltation, and we feel like, no problem, I can handle anything. And we tend to overestimate our spiritual strength. 
And we daydream about these glorious things we're going to do for God and these glorious things we're going to endure for God. And we are so painfully weak. And unless God protects us, we are going to fail at the worst possible moment, just like these disciples. Some of you might be familiar with the TV series Band of Brothers. There was a companion series to that called The Pacific, about the war in the Pacific and the Second World War. And there was a scene in there on, I think it was Okinawa, and the American soldiers are in their trenches at night in the mountains somewhere. The Japanese are not that far away. And there's one of the soldiers is sleeping, and he begins to have a terrible nightmare. And he starts screaming. And all the other soldiers are trying to wake him up and shake him up. It's like, you need to be quiet. There's like Japanese soldiers all around us. And they start firing, and they can't wake this guy up. And one of the soldiers has to smash him over the head with a shovel to get him to be quiet. We are all prone to doing that kind of thing at the worst possible moment spiritually. To collapse, to snap, when everything depends on us. We are all capable of that. And letting down everyone around us, and worst of all, letting down Christ. And if you think you're strong... Don't forget there have been more impressive disciples than you who have fallen away from the faith. People with greater gifts, with seemingly stronger character, have failed to endure to the end. And do you really think that you, with your puny little gifts and abilities, can possibly withstand the assaults of Satan, the temptations of the world, and the treachery of your own heart? We are sadly deluded if we think we can do that. If you think you're standing firm, 1 Corinthians 10, 12, if you you think you're standing firm, take heed that you don't fall. And if God left you to your own devices, and thank God he upholds you even when you forget to pray, but if he left you to your own devices, you too would deny Jesus within Hours. We need God to hold us up. So, here's Jesus with these boasting disciples. A bunch of braggarts who have no idea of their own weakness. And yet, Jesus is determined to die for these men. He's determined to die for Peter and for these other disciples who do not know their own weakness. Jesus is the shepherd who was going to be struck by God. And the failure of the disciples, the desertion of the ten, the denial by Peter, are not a surprise to Jesus. They have been prophesied of old. And Jesus had always known. He knew it was in the hearts of his disciples. He knew exactly what they were, and weren't capable of. He had taken their full measure, and nevertheless, Jesus is determined to die for them. When they start boasting and bragging, Jesus, out of irritation, doesn't say, okay, cancel that. The shepherd will not be struck. I'm going to take my eraser and make that unwritten, because this is not worth it. He knows they are going to panic. He knows they're going to abandon him, and he goes and dies for them anyways. Jesus, 
will die for boasting disciples. And Jesus will also die for sleeping disciples. Because he goes with these 11 guys to Gethsemane, the Garden of Gethsemane. And Gethsemane literally means the oil press. The olives would be put into kind of a pit, and this massive screw would turn, and the olives would be squeezed and and crushed so the oil would run out of them. And Jesus is about to experience this kind of thing in prayer before God, to feel the screw turning over him and to feel himself being squeezed and crushed with incredible anguish. He goes into the garden. He leaves eight of the disciples by the gate, sit here while I pray, and he takes his closest three into the garden, Peter, James, and John. And these were the three, remember, that Jesus had taken up to the Mount of Transfiguration. The other disciples were left at the bottom. He had taken Peter, James, and John to the top, and they had had this incredible, dazzling revelation of the power and glory of Jesus' divinity. And now, at the bottom of the Mount of Olives, Peter and James and John are going to have an incredible revelation of the weakness and frailty of Jesus' humanity. Jesus is fully God, but he's also fully man. And he has a human body, but not just a human body. It's not kind of a costume he wears, but it's God peeking out of the eyes. Jesus has a human mind and human emotions and a human will. And all those aspects of him he brings to the cross. Jesus suffers as a human being. And as he enters the garden, he begins to be deeply distressed and troubled. He's feeling the weight on his spirit, and he begins to experience this psychological anguish. And he tells the three that my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow, even to the point of death. And he's feeling this grief pressing down on him, and it's so intense, it's crushing him and nearly killing him. And it's, it's unbearable, this anticipation of unimaginable suffering that he's about to endure. And so he asks his friends, please stay here and watch with me. He feels the need of friendship and companionship, moral support around him. And then he takes a few steps from them and he falls to the ground. And normally Jewish people prayed standing with their hands raised and their faces to heaven. But Jesus flings himself on the ground in total supplication and submission to God. This is no time for merely formal prayer. Jesus needs to wrestle with God, and he prays, God, if possible, that this hour might pass from him. Because what Jesus is about to face is something so awful and so terrifying and so full of horror that if there is any other path that he could take, any other way that he could follow, please, God, let me take that. If it's possible, please. And it's striking that the first words of Jesus' prayer are Abba, Father. And Abba is the Aramaic word for Father. 
And it's how an adult son would address the head of the family. It's a word of incredible intimacy and respect. And no Jewish person ever used this word in praying to God. And in fact, this is the only verse in the Bible where we find Jesus addressing God as Abba. In the moment of Jesus' deepest agony, he approaches God with the greatest intimacy. Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, Father. And the cup that is before Jesus is the cup of God's wrath. If you read the Old Testament, you find this image Again and again, here's Psalm 75. In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its dregs. This is the cup of God's fury against sin. And Jesus is in the garden as the sinless one, the son of God who can address the creator of the universe as Abba. And he is being asked to drink down this poison chalice of the sin and judgment that the entire human race deserves. That is what is before Jesus. Now, facing the judgment of God, just as a single sinner, is a terrifying thought. To stand before God's throne and him slowly flipping through all your stuff, and all your sin and malice and shamefulness, the holy eyes of God looking over all those things. And you're standing there and all the excuses and all the rationalizing is gone. There's nothing you can, st- you can say as you stand before the judge of all for your own sin. Jesus has no sin of his own, but he is about to face God's judgment for the sins of everyone who would believe on him. All of our sins were part of the cup that Jesus was being asked to drink down. What would it mean for Jesus to take the evil of the world upon his shoulders? Not just to sip from the cup, but to drink and drink and drink that cup down to the very dregs so there's nothing left. That is what Jesus is being asked to do. And this is why Jesus is filled with horror at what he's facing. It's not just the prospect of death. Many people have faced death with more bravery, seemingly, than what Jesus demonstrates here. But Jesus is facing something a lot more frightening than mere death, a lot more painful than the flogging and spitting and nailing of the Roman soldiers. He is facing the wrath of God. He is bowing himself and allowing himself as the shepherd to be struck by the rod of God's anger. This is what Jesus is facing in the garden. And he prays and he agonizes with God. Not just a few sentences we read here, but he was praying for hours. And in the end, Jesus submits himself to the will of his father. Yet, Not what I will, but what you will 
God. He expresses, he pours out his heart to God. All the hesitation that he would naturally feel as a human being, all the shrinking from death and judgment that he felt, he poured that all out with total honesty before God. But in the end, he chose to submit himself to the will of his Father. And if anyone in history had the right to say, Father, not your will, but mine be done. If anyone had the right to say no to God, surely it was Jesus Christ, the Son of God, fully equal to God. But he bows and he submits himself to the will of God. And surely there is a lesson here for our own prayers, isn't there? If Jesus submits himself so fully to the will of God, even in the face of this horror that he's about to face, if Jesus bows himself to the will of God, then surely as Jesus' followers and disciples, God is asking us to trust and obey him in the same way. The true disciple who prays like Jesus taught him, our Father, in heaven, also prays, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not just the earth generally around me, but in my own heart. God, help me to obey. Uh, in Hebrews 5, 7 and 8, the author tells us that during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, He learned obedience through what he suffered. And son, though you are, daughter, though you are, you too will learn obedience through what you suffer because you are following the path that Jesus has marked out for you. And we tend to think of prayer as convincing God to do our will. But so often in prayer, it is God changing our own will to be compliant with his. When we speak to God as Father, we are acknowledging not only that God will provide for us, but he has the right to command our obedience. And when we say, no, not your will, mine be done, God, we are expressing deep distrust in the purposes of God for us. When we submit ourselves to God's will, That might seem like a small crucifixion for us, but it is the safest thing we could possibly pray. And we have all prayed so many misguided prayers, prayers that were foolish, but we thought would secure our own happiness. But God's plan is always, always, always better. I don't know what you are praying for now, but it is a good thing for you to pray, God, not my will, but yours be done. That is the place of security and true blessing. And may God give us the grace to pray like Jesus does. But I'm sorry to say these lessons are wasted on the disciples because Peter and James and John are sound asleep while this is happening. Presumably they caught the first few sentences because they're recorded for us in Mark, but the rest of it they miss because they are sound asleep, curled up and snoring. 
And they've had this Passover feast, they've drunk four cups of wine, and the idea of an all-night prayer meeting is just not very attractive to them right now. And Jesus returns, and he rebukes his disciples. It's a gentle rebuke, but it is a rebuke. And he goes to Peter first. Peter, who always volunteers as the leader. Simon, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? It was only minutes ago you were boasting of your loyalty and your spiritual stamina, and there you are on the ground with your mouth hanging open and drool sliding out of it, sound asleep. And I am here praying and agonizing and wrestling with God, and you are dead to the world. Peter, couldn't you watch and pray for one hour? Watch and pray, Peter, so that you don't fall into temptation. Peter was a sleeping disciple because he was a boasting disciple. Boasting, self-sufficient disciples don't pray, do they? And I am convicted of my own prayerlessness, my own lack of zeal to go towards God, my own shallowness and running through my list of things. It's because I'm a proud, self-sufficient person, and I really believe that I can handle things on my own. People who feel that they are weak and who know that they could easily fall, those are people who watch and pray so they don't fall into temptation. But boasting disciples would rather be sleeping. So here are these disciples, not just Peter, but the other two as well, sound asleep in the hour of Christ's greatest need. And when he most wants and needs his friends close to him, they fail him. He is agonizing and sweating drops of blood on the ground, and they are sound asleep. And nevertheless, Jesus will die for his sleeping disciples. He is choosing to drink the cup while they are sound asleep. He looks over as he's praying, and he sees these guys curled up on the ground, And yet he chooses to go to the cross for them. And Jesus sees us in our boasting and our self-sufficiency and our spiritual sloth and laziness, let's be honest. And he chooses to drink the cup for us. He doesn't reverse his decision. He doesn't give the cup back to God. He chooses to drink that cup and to drink it down to the very dregs for us. He does this for disciples. We all have sins we committed before we came to Jesus, and we know those are forgiven. But Jesus also died for the more grievous sins we've committed while following him. And we've all promised great things to God, haven't we? We have committed and pledged and promised how we would obey God, and we have failed time and time again through our own arrogance and through our own laziness, and Jesus drinks the cup for people like us. So we've had Jesus dying for our boasting disciples and for our sleeping disciples, and Jesus dies for the fleeing disciples as well. He wakes these three guys up. My hour has come. 
we need to go and meet the betrayer. The Son of Man is going to be handed into the clutches of sinners. And as Jesus is speaking, Judas appears in the garden with a mob of armed men with swords and clubs, the temple guards sent by the religious authorities. And John, the Gospel of John, also tells us that there was a cohort of Roman soldiers there. That would have been about 600 Roman soldiers surrounding the Garden of Gethsemane as well. This huge nighttime operation is taking place because Jesus must be seized at the right time and the right way as the Passover is happening so that there isn't some enormous riot. And I suppose there's a fear that in the nighttime, among the trees, they might grab the wrong person or in the confusion, the rabbi is going to slip away and disappear among the trees. And so Judas, the betrayer, arranges a signal. And he walks up to Jesus and says, Rabbi, so happy to see you. And he takes him by the shoulders and kisses him in this hypocritical gesture of affection and respect for his teacher. And then Jesus is seized by the armed men and he's arrested. Jesus has laid his hands on many people to bring healing and life. And now he allows hands to be laid on him to lead him to torture and to death. And as this happens, there's, there's some scuffle and someone, we know from God, John's gospel was Peter, takes his sword and slices off the ear of the high priest servant. But Jesus shuts this down. There is no need for violence from anyone. This mob of armed men and the hundreds of soldiers are totally unnecessary. It's kind of ridiculous. Jesus is not a bandit. He's not Osama bin Laden who needs this kind of operation. There's no need for it because Jesus says, I haven't been scheming in the shadows somewhere trying to plot an insurrection. I've been teaching openly in the temple. And anytime you wanted to, you could have arrest, arrested me and taken me. Jesus is not fleeing from his death. He is in total control of this situation. And he says, the scriptures must be fulfilled. God has a script, and I have given myself to that script completely. And so if the next step in God's plan is for me to be arrested and to be tried and to be tortured and to die, that is what needs to happen. And up to that moment, I suppose the disciples had been hoping that this was you know, the beginning of the revolution, the flashpoint of insurrection. But when Jesus says, the scriptures must be fulfilled, then at last they realize that Jesus really does mean to die. Jesus had been prophesying and predicting again and again, the Son of Man must suffer and die. He will be handed over to sinners. But the disciples refused to believe this. They could not accept it. But now there is no denying that Jesus really is going to die. And when this happens, all their promises of loyalty given hours earlier are forgotten and everyone flees and abandons, abandons Jesus, every man for himself. And there's this mysterious man, young man in his nightshirt, perhaps Mark himself, some think, 
And he only escapes arrest by slipping out of his garment and running naked for his life. And really, the nakedness and shame of all the disciples has been exposed in this incident. And Jesus is led off to his doom alone. No one remains with him. There's only one hero in the gospel story. And the hero is not Peter or James or John. It's not any of the other disciples. And it's not you either. You also are in the story running naked through your, for your life through the trees. There's one hero in the story, and that is Jesus Christ. And as we meditate on these sorry disciples, we have to ask, really, how, how tenacious is our own commitment? How strong is our own grip on Jesus? Is it all just talk and bluster? Has our loyalty to Christ really been tested and proven? Because you know what? We're all really at bottom. We're all boasting, sleeping, fleeing disciples. And that's no surprise to Jesus. Whatever discipleship failures you may have had, no surprise to Jesus. People around you might be shocked. You might be shocked yourself. Jesus is not shocked by however you might have failed him. And he's a lot more clear-eyed about your weakness than you are yourself. Not surprised. And if you have failed Jesus in some way, join the club. Because all of us here have failed Christ, not just once, but many, many times. And Jesus goes to his death for disciples who fail him. But that's not quite all there is in the story. Because even as Jesus speaks of the disciples falling away, he also says this, after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. After I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. And there's this shaft of light shining into the dark gloom of our chapter. The disciples falling away is not going to be the end of the story. Not the end of Jesus' story and not the end of their story. Even as Jesus goes to Gethsemane, he appoints a rendezvous for the disciples. We are going to meet up again in Galilee. Galilee, the place where I first called you as my followers, will be the place I restore you and reconstitute you as my disciples and apostles. After I have risen. Because the resurrection is going to overcome the disciples' failure. And the resurrection life of Jesus will also overcome our failure. We're not trapped in a continual cycle of disappointing Jesus. He has risen from the grave. He's seated at the right hand of God. He walks in our midst and he has given us the very same spirit by which he is raised from the dead. So as we meditate on this chapter, we should be humbled by our own weakness. We need the Holy Spirit to show us how frail we really are so that we can lean our entire weight 
on the one who died for us and who rose from the dead for us. The worship team is going to come up. Before we sing, I just invite you to bow your heads and open your spirit up to God and ask him to humble your own heart, to help you to embrace weakness so that you can be truly strong in Christ. Let's bow our heads and come before God. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.